And I'll say this to you, and to you, and to you. I am the man. When you're given a topic or an issue that's very interesting to you, something that's just kind of intriguing and may come off as kind of, maybe kind of like a conspiracy theory sort of thing, you kind of start to look for sound bites and your producers look for you as well. And what you come up with is not as good as you'd hoped. And the thing that I that we found that I found and that we found together as a whole, all three of us, that's really, really interesting, was what you heard at the beginning. And given where I'm going here, that's going to seem kind of funny. And hopefully it will. So a while ago, I I watched a documentary. And it's, it's really interesting. And it has to do a lot, of, lot with the monarchy. With Britain's monarchy. And it's really, really, it's really interesting. And I know you're probably thinking a bunch of it is just all hearsay and where am I going with this and is there really any truth to this? It's kind of just, it's kind of interesting in that respect. Very, very, very interesting. And it goes along the fact of the theory that is Britain's current monarchy, is Britain's real current monarchy, are they the real monarchs? Are they, do they really, are they legitimate? And every historical reference that I've seen and that the documentary showed and documentary Campbell with evidence on, it's called Britain's Real Monarch. It's a historical documentary and it shows evidence that maybe they're not. And maybe the, the tutors that came a long, long time ago Maybe they're not. And a lot of it just... A lot of it, yeah, you're kind of going to go... Maybe these people are just trying to stir up... Stir the pot and trying to steep... But what if... What if, like, there's this alternate reality or alternate history? What if that was the case? And what if they really aren't? And what if the real monarchy, the real royal monarchs are still alive and what if they were a different family and a lot of this is just kind of interesting and a lot of it has to do with descendants of someone called someone who and we're probably not going to know how to pronounce this or how to pronounce it or spell it so I'll spell it for you but with the descendants of George Plantagenet P-L-A-N-T A-G-E-N-E-T George Plantagenet and it's very it's very very interesting and it, it focuses on a claim that Edward IV was illegitimate and it's a thesis that deals with that and Edward IV was born to Cecily Duchess of York by an English archer surnamed Playborne by some while her husband, Richard Plantagenet, the third Duke of York, was fighting elsewhere in France. The legitimacy of Edward IV is a subject of speculation at, this, at that time. In the document, in Rouen Cathedral, R-O-U-E-N, Rouen Cathedral, is presented. 
indicating that Richard and Cecily were about 100 miles apart during the five-week period when it's thought that Edward's conception must have occurred, assuming the pregnancy went a normal term. A number of historians since challenged the conclusions reached by the the documentary and all the stories and all the assumed documental proof. If Edward were indeed illegitimate, then he and his descendants would have had no valid claim to the throne. So, the documentary and historical evidence suggests that the real monarchs were the heirs of his, of his legitimate brother, George, Duke of Clarence. At the time, this line was represented by the 14th Earl of, Lu- of Loudoun, L-O-U-D-O-U-N, or Loudoun. Problem me, sorry for butchering that. Anyone who knows to correctly pronounce that, please correctly pronounce it and then correct me and correct us so we know how it's correctly pronounced. He usually, the 14th Earl of Loudoun, Loudoun, who usually usually styled himself simply as Michael Hastings. He had immigrated to Australia in 1960, married and fathered five children, and he lived in Gerald Derry, New South Wales, in Australia until his death in June 2012. A lot of that is very, a lot of that is very, very interesting. And it talks a lot about what what the what who who the Plantagenets were, and hopefully with a little bit of with a little bit of research here, I can I can give you a little bit of of a of a history if the notes that my producers and I took here will behave if I can open them and. It's opening on the on Britannica, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I'm pulling open the 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 House of Plantagenet, also called the House of Anjou or the Angevin Dynasty, which reigned from 1154 to 1485 and provided 14 kings, six of whom belonged to the cadet to the to the cadet houses of Lancaster and York. The royal line descended from the union between Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, and the Empress Matilda, daughter of English King Henry I. Although well established, the surname Plantagenet has little historical justification. It seems to have originated as a nickname for Count Geoffrey and has been variously explained as referring to his practice of wearing a sprig of broom. Uh, in his hat, or more probably to his habit of planting brooms to, imp- to improve his hunting covers. It was not, however, his hereditary surname, and Geoffrey's descendants in England remained without it, without one for more than 250 years. Although surnames, although surnames became universally out- universal, became universal outside the royal family. Some historians apply the name House of Anjou, or the Angevin dynasty, to Henry II, who was also Count of Anjou, and his 13 successors. Other historians label only Henry II and his sons, Richard I and John, 
as the Angevin kings, and, for want of a better name, label their successors, notably Edward I, II, and III, as Plantagenets. The first official use of the surname Plantagenet by any descendant of, the, of Count Geoffrey occurred in 1460, when Richard, Duke of York, claimed the throne as Richard Plantagenet, spelled P-L-A-N-T-A-G-I-N-E-T. Edward III's numerous children and their marriages greatly affected English history. Edward's heir, the Black Prince, left only one, left an only son who succeeded his grandfather as Richard II, whose death in 1399 became this whose death whose death sorry the the notes are a little bit kind of out of out of alignment here. This line became extinct. Lionel, the next surviving son of Edward III, left an only child, Philippa, who married the Earl of March, in whose heirs was the right to the, to the succession. But John of Gaunt, the next son, who had married the heiress of Lancaster, and had been created Duke of Lancaster in consequence, refounded the Lancastrian line, which obtained the throne in the, in the person of his only heir, Henry IV, on the deposition of Richard II. The next son of Edward III, Edmund of Langley, who was created Duke of York in 1385, founded the Yorkist line and fathered two, and was, and was the father of two sons, Edward, the second duke, who was slain in Agincourt, and Richard, Earl of Cambridge who, by marrying the granddaughter and eventual heiress of Lionel's daughter, Philippa, brought the right to the succession into the House of York. Between their son and Henry IV, and the sons and heirs of, those, of these rivals was fought out the dynastic struggle known as the Wars of the Roses, which proved fatal to several members of both houses. It did not end until the until the last Yorkist king, Richard III, was defeated at Bosworth Field in 1485 by Henry Tudor, who became Henry VII and founder of the House of Tudor. That's that's getting around to the House of Tudor. The legitimate male issues of the Plantagenet line became extinct with the execution in 1499 of Edward, Earl of Warwick, grandson of Richard, Duke of York. There's a lot... Oh, sorry. Uh, the notes are kind of... kind of fuzzy. And a lot of that... A lot of this... I know, a lot of this you probably are going, well, that's kind of... It's kind of hard. Family trees, just in general are kind of hard to follow and especially royal family trees are kind of kind of odd kind of weird hard to follow excuse me everyone <coughs> but it gets you wondering if edward was if if he was legit illegitimate and the plantagenets were the royal or the real monarchs they and they should be in power 
what is the case now? What, 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 who should, who should be, who should be the real king? And like you heard in the beginning, it's, it's Michael. And I forget his last, his last name escaping me right now, a little bit right now. But I got to wondering that if, if the Plantagenets should actually be the current monarchs of England and not the, I believe the name is Windsor, and not the Tudors and then Windsor, um, should the, should Michael, who ended up moving to Australia and raising his family in Australia, should he be the current King of England? And what if, if that was the case, what if the descendants of, what if the Plantagenet descendants had given that, given what had occurred to them, had moved on and moved elsewhere in the world? And what if they'd grown up elsewhere? So what if the current, and this is all going on, this alternate reality, this alternate, alternate history kind of thing. What if that line, the Plantagenet line continued? And it continues to this day. And what if there's a descendant, a direct descendant of George Plantagenet currently alive? And what if that person is the legitimate heir to the British throne? And what if, because whatever happened, it got taken away from them. What if that person, through some event or whatever that the throne the throne left the Windsors or couldn't be held by a Windsor anymore. What if that person with current legitimate claim to the throne could could claim power? What if that person could go back and claim power? And it kind of spawned off on this history or this thought that let's say that person is 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 a queen. What if that descendant of the Plantagenet line lives in the U.S. now? And what if that family, where when in the real history when, when the Plantagenet separated, what if when their descendants moved elsewhere in the world, like has happened with Michael, what if this person is the is a legitimate heir to the British throne? And what would that do? Not only to, I know, not only it wouldn't do it wouldn't do much or if, or if anything to the government, because the British government is not the monarchs. The British government is the prime minister. He is the government. Um, he or she, well, although I believe because I'm not familiar with British policy and British government, um, I believe he. Um, but so, and the, and the monarchy is not figureheads. Uh, but what if, what if the current, the current, what if the heir to the Plantagenet line is an American citizen and now lives in the U.S.? And what if she is a character that I've written about? And how, and how, can I work that in? And how can I work that in? And what'll happen if she finds this out? And what has she? What are her? 
her obstacles to overcome and what are the British obstacles to overcome for that matter and it's very very interesting and I've been fiddling around with that idea and toying that around with that idea and it's very it's just wildly interesting and I found a little bit more on the House of Plantagenet and a little bit of stuff that I've gotten from from Britannica mostly from Britannica a little from Wikipedia Mostly from Britannica, mostly from other encyclopedias, and a lot of my own, just digging through stuff that I've got online from the libraries and stuff like that. So the, the House of Plantagenet was a royal house which originated from the lands of Anjou in France. The name Plantagenet is used by modern historians to identify four distinct royal houses. The Angevins, who were also Counts of Anjou, the main body of the Plantagenets, tongue tied there. The main body of the Plantagenets, following the loss of Anjou and the Plantagenets' two cadet branches, cadet branches, the House of Lancaster and York. The family held the English throne from 1154, with the ascension of Henry II, at the end of the Anarchy Crisis, until 1485, when Richard III died in battle. Under the Plantagenets, England was transformed, although this was only partially intentional. The Plantagenet kings were often forced to negotiate compromises such as the famous Magna Carta. These constrained royal power in return for financial and military support. The king was no longer just the most powerful man in the nation, holding the prerogatives of judgment, feudal feudal tribute, and warfare but now also had defined duties at duties to the realm, underpinned by a sophisticated justice system. A distinct national identity was shaped by conflict with the French, Scots, Welsh, and Irish, and the establishment of English as the primary language. In the 15th century, the Plantagenets were defeated in the Hundred Years' War and beset with social, political, and economic problems. Popular revolts were, were commonplace, triggered by the denial of numerous freedoms. English nobles raised private armies, engaged in private feuds, and openly defied Henry VI. The rivalry between the House of, the, the House of Plantagenet's two cadet branches of York and Lancaster brought about the Wars of the Roses, a decades-long fight for the English succession, culminating in the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, when the reign of the Plantagenets and the English Middle Ages both met their end with the death of King Richard III, Henry Henry VII of, of, of Lancastrian descent, became King of England. Five months later, he married Elizabeth of York, thus ending the Wars of the Roses and giving rise to the Tudor dynasty. The Tudors worked to centralize English power, which allowed them to avoid some of the problems that had plagued the, the Plantagenet rulers. The resulting stability allowed for the English Renaissance and the advent of early modern Britain. Richard the third Duke of York adopted Plantagenet as his family name in the 15th century. 
Plantagenist, or Plantagenist, had been a 12th century nickname for his ancestor, Geoffrey, who I mentioned earlier, Count of Anjou and Duke of Normandy. One of the more popular theories suggests that the blossom suggests the blossom of common of common broom, a bright yellow gold flowering plant. Genista in in medieval Latin as a source of the nickname. It is uncertain why Richard chose this specific name. Although during the Wars of the Roses, it emphasized Richard's status as Geoffrey's patrilineal descendant. The retrospective usage of the name for all of Geoffrey's male line descendants was popular during the subsequent Tudor dynasty, perhaps encouraged by the further legitimacy it gave to Richard's great-grandson, Henry VIII. Oh, Henry VIII. Now everyone knows Henry VIII. Mr. Catherine, Catherine of Aragon, his wife, Anne Boleyn, that guy. It was only in the late 17th century that it passed into common usage among historians. Angevin, A-N-G-E-V-I-N, Angevin, is French for from from Anjou. The three Angevin kings were Henry II, Richard I, and John. Angevin can also refer to the period of history in which they rejoined. In which, in which they rejoined. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In which they reigned. Many historians identify the Angevins as a distinct English royal house. Angevin is also used in reference to any sovereign or government derived from Anjou. As a noun, it refers to any native of Anjou or an Angevin ruler and specifically to other counts and dukes of Anjou, including the ancestors of the three kings who formed the English royal houses, their cousins, who held the crown of Jerusalem, and to the unrelated members of the French royal family, who were later granted the titles and formed different dynasties, such as the Capetian House of Anjou and the Valois House of Anjou. Consequently, there is a disagreement between those who consider Henry III to be the first Plantagenet monarch and those who do not distinguish between Angevins and Plantagenets and therefore consider the first Plantagenet to be Henry II. The later counts, the later counts of Anjou, including the Plantagenets, descended from Geoffrey II, Count of, Count of, Gat- of Gatinay, and his wife, Ermengarde of Anjou. In 1060, the couple inherited the title, the title via the cognatic kinship from an Angevin family that was descended from a noble named, named Ingeller, whose recorded history dates from 870. A lot of this, like I was saying, a lot of this is kind of like the family tree, like I said earlier, the family tree, especially the British family tree, the British royal family tree, is kind of, has so, has so many branches, it looks like a mutant tree. So, it's got a lot of branches to it. During the 10th and 11th centuries, 
Power struggles occurred between rulers in the northern and western France, including those of Anjou, Normandy, Brittany, Poitou, Blois, Maine, and the kings of France. In the early 12th century, Geoffrey of Anjou married Empress Matilda, King Henry I's only surviving legitimate child and heir to the English throne. As a result of this marriage, Geoffrey's son Henry II inherited the English throne, as well as the Norman and Angevin titles, thus making the beginnings of the Angevin and Plantagenet dynasties. The marriage was the third attempt of Geoffrey's father, Folk V, Count of Anjou, to build a political alliance with Normandy. He, f he first espoused his daughter Alice to William Adeline, Henry I's heir. After William drowned in the wreck of the, after William drowned in the wreck of the white ship Folk, the white ship drowned in the wreck of the white ship. Folk married another of his daughters, Sibylla, to William to William Clito, son of Henry I's older brother Robert Curthouse. Henry I. Henry I had the marriage annulled to avoid strengthening William's rivalry claim to Normandy. Finally, Folk achieved his goals through the marriage of Geoffrey and Matilda. Folk then passed his titles to Geoffrey and became king of Jerusalem. I know a lot of that's kind of huh. There's a lot there's a lot about a lot in this history and a lot in these stories about the Plantagenet history and the Plantagenet line and the Tudors and then the Windsors and all sorts of interesting very very interesting stuff like that and a lot of it has, and I don't I haven't seen any hardcore hardcore evidence I've seen a lot of evidence and I've seen a lot of a lot of what appears to be in the in the Royal Archives or the National Archives in England that appear to prove to appear to prove or back up the illegitimacy showing that that if this if this monarch or person was not conceived by a royal by a royal father and conceived by someone else then he is illegitimate and doesn't have a right to the throne but if he was conceived by the royal father, he does have a legitimate claim to the throne. Now, I haven't seen any written in stone hardcore evidence to, to convince me of that. But, it's, just, it's interesting to think that given all this history and given everything that we've seen and all this evidence that I've read by and gone through my notes and gone through my producer's notes as well, that that it is possible that there's a lot of evidence that's stacked up against against the current against the, the current status of things and to say that maybe the heir that passed everything down to him was put down to them was illegitimate and maybe because you have to say no one knows for sure you have to say maybe but maybe the real the the real royal monarch the real king should be someone else should be a descendant of the plantagenet line and like you, like i mentioned earlier it gives me the thought that 
not just to say, except this is the way it is, and that's why I, why I do a lot of writing and why I love doing these episodes, is that you get to pose the question, Why? what if it's different? What if the way we accept things to be isn't the way it is? And don't just don't always look at things and accept that the way you see it is the way it is. Accept that there may, there may also be another way about it. There may be an underlying why, or there may be an underlying story to it. And it makes you just don't question everything, but it makes you question and makes you think that maybe there's another story to it, and maybe we're what we're being told. There's more to it than that. It's just it's just extremely interesting to think, and it got me thinking. There could be a story here. You could connect this, and there could be a story here that, like I said, like you've like we've heard before, the 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 only living, last living, and only living descendant of the Plantagenet line of the person, the only living descendant of of that line who still has a legitimate claim. To the British throne is still alive, and what if she lives elsewhere in the world? You you heard that that Michael, the fourteenth Earl of Loudon, moved to Australia, and he lived in he lived in Australia until he until he died in twenty twelve. Uh, what if? So what if the other direct descendants of this Plantagenet line? moved like Michael did and live elsewhere in the world and what if that that line led up to the current legitimate Queen of England and it's interesting to see where that could go it's just really really interesting and it's going to be kind of interesting to write and kind of interesting to look into because being over here I know next to nothing about Monarchy and the British, especially British monarchy, but I know nothing about monarchy in general. And it's kind of interesting to figure out where it could go, and and what could happen, and what I could take in, and what I could what I could learn, and how things could where I could take it. And it's interesting to try and figure out that when and what you could pursue with the last living the last living royal being an American, how the British populace. And how British citizens would react. Now, I know people are going, whoa, you can't go down that avenue because that would be weird. Well, the last, the, the last living queen being, being an American. That's not a big jump if you think about it. There's already a duchess who's an American. So, there's not, that's not big of a jump to assume. And even before that, you can assume it's, you have to think about it a little bit, but you can assume that it's not that not that hard. So thank you all for hanging around with me and listening to it as much as you can. I know this can kind of be of a bit of a headache with all this any family tree, like I said, any family tree, but this can all be a headache. So thank you all for listening and sticking with me. Hang on for a little bit more on the end here. Want to check out the best podcast and best YouTube channel out there? True, true friends of this podcast? Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. 
give them a five-star review, head on over to YouTube, look up Fantastic Studios, give them a five-star review, and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. Want to go to the coolest place in Las Vegas? Stay at the best hotel casino where you're treated like family, friends, and you feel like you belong. It's very comfortable. And you even get to meet the CEO who greets everyone. Go to the plaza. Stay at the plaza. Take my advice. You'll love it there. Please join me in supporting and giving to the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project. When you donate to the Pride Foundation, you join thousands of supporters building a better, safer, more equitable world for LGBTQIA people and their families. Every gift, whether $1 or $1,000, makes an impact for real people and ripples outward into our communities. There are many different ways to join and help the fight. Also go on to their websites for the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project and donate and help in any way possible. The Trevor Project offers support and help for LGBTQIA youth all over the country and all over the world. Please show them some love and give them some support. Mm-hmm.